a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the Force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 77 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your ticket to the EU. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, www.StarWarsReport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes and right on our own Facebook page at SW Beyond Films. Now enough about how you got here, let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, Mark Herleman. And with me, like the threat of stability to the galaxy, the EU guru himself, the Count of Continuity, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. Hey everybody, and boy is this an episode where that Count of Continuity thing is going to come in, apparently. <laughs> That's right. That is right. Here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars, and so do we. This episode, we look at Star Wars Dawn of the Jedi Volume 2, Prisoner of Bogan. Now consider this your spoiler warning, Beyonders, and Sension of All Ages, because here we go. Now, before we jump into this major spoiler area, we felt it'd be nice for once to offer up a spoiler-free version, or as close as we can get for those of you who are hesitant on spoilers. With that, here it goes. All right, spoiler-free. This is an interesting tale. It builds where the first storyline left off, Force Storm. It is two months after that. uh, The character of Zesh has been imprisoned on Bogan for two months, supposedly to contemplate the light side, which he really knows nothing about. While there, he has met Dagon Lok, the prisoner of Bogan, who uh, he appeared to in that same vision that uh, the other Jedi wound up uh, uh, seeing of him back in Force Storm. So now those two meet, and it, it kind of becomes more of Dagon Lok's story at this point. Um, Dagon Lok has had a vision, and this vision is a dangerous one, apparently, uh, and has caused him to be sent to Bogan, and... He is obsessed with this vision and what it might mean for the future of the Jedi Order, for Tython, for him as a leader, perhaps, uh, and in terms of technology, because in his vision he sees a Force Saber. So with all these things happening, we see essentially a prison break where Zesh and Dagon go on the run trying to gather the things that Dagon feels like he needs to force the Jedi into listening to the truth about his vision to prepare for an upcoming conflagration that, of course, if you're fan of Dawn of the Jedi in this era, you know, must be the upcoming Force War, which is the one thing we've been given a date for in this era that they've really kind of hyped up in the past as that's what Dawn of the Jedi is leaning towards. Um, It's a story that very much is sort of a tour of different uh, parts of this system. They travel to quite a few of the different worlds in it. By the end, we know a little bit more about the vision, we know more about the past, and we know more about uh, the connection between Zesh and Trill and why exactly it is that Zesh was that apparent saboteur uh, that we found out about in 
for Storm aboard uh, his own Rakatan Master's ship. Definitely one to check out, but you need to have read the first story first. You do not, however, need to have read Into the Void to understand this story. There seems to be little to no connection there. The connection goes mostly one direction um, for readers of the novel. Yeah, I, I like this arc. I think it's a fun arc. Uh, I like the fact that we see more of the Force Hounds. We see a lot more of the technologies in play. Some of the histories beyond this history, because this is all new to us as well. Uh, and a lot of character growth going on in this, as well as a lot of characters that uh, get kind of introduced or elaborated on. Um, some that you've only heard of in the Zero issues and so forth that, that are finally getting their time in the light. A lot of cool stuff like that. Um as we get into the rest of the spoilers, you know, we'll spoil the heck out of it. But for those of you afraid, consider this your jump off point because from here on out, it's going to get pretty thick. Now, with that said, here come the major spoilers. If you want to stay somewhat spoiler free, this is your jump off. We will not be warning you again. With that, Nathan, take it away. This is one of these stories that uh, it pushes along things. It bridges basically what we got with Force Storm into what's coming up with the Force War. And we're going to be eventually taking a look at uh, Dawn of the Jedi Into the Void. If you are looking at that book and you haven't picked up these comics yet, note that the little preview of Prisoner of Bogan that they put inside that, that's the comic that's inserted into the novel, that is not what it says it is. It says it's a preview of issue number one. It's not. It's a preview of issue number two in that case. So don't get confused if you pull up issue number one and realize... There's no direct connection between that and the pages that you're seeing in that novel. It's also probably a good time to talk timing, because the timing thing has become an issue recently. I started into doing the summary for Into the Void, and uh, from what I could tell, and from what it seemed like the sources were telling us at the time, Dawn of the Jedi, at least the stories we're getting right now, take place in the year 25,793 years before the Battle of Yavin. And as I was going through putting that together, that no longer was making sense. There are quotes before each chapter in Into the Void, and the dates for some of those quotes, which are given as uh, years after the Thoyor arrival, uh, a TYA, basically uh, uh, some number than TYA, meaning years after the Thoyor arrival, um, they weren't matching up right. A character who uh, is killed in the novel was somehow talking a year after his death, or her death, as the case may be which didn't make sense. So I emailed Leland Chi about this, and it turns out that some of the dates we've been given don't jive with other dates we've been given, but there is an official answer as to when the Dawn of the Jedi stuff takes place. The reason for this, uh, th this disconnect here, basically, is that in the Force Storm comics, that's the first storyline of Dawn of the Jedi, it says that they begin with the Thoyor arrival segment in 36,453 years BBY, which also fits with, if you go on uh, the Old Republic's website, they've got that galactic history part where they have all the dates in terms of before the Treaty of Coruscant. And the Treaty of Coruscant was in the year uh, 3,653 BBY. So you do the conversion, and it puts the Thoyor arrival on there at 32,800 years before the Treaty of Coruscant. Add in the number for the conversion you get the 36,453 number that we got in the, the little uh, interior cover page notation for, for Storm. 
But Four Storm was a little frustrating because they gave that date as the beginning of the story in all of the issues when it's really just that early, early, early part in issue number one, whereas most of the story takes place much, much, much later. Um, it's an even bigger mess if you look at the issues here of Prisoner of Bogan because they all refer to the second arc uh, taking place over 36,000 years before the Battle of Yavin, which it doesn't. They are over 10,000 years off in the dates that they give on the interior covers of Prisoner of Bogan. Um, it's absolutely ridiculous uh, how off they are on that. That's the biggest continuity discrepancy I've ever seen when it comes to an interior cover date, and that beats anything that we ever saw with Tales of the Jedi way back in the early 90s and some of the interior timelines for those. And then you look at the way that the website for the Old Republic lists the time period of the Force War, which is supposed to be the story that these are leading into that take place in the same year. You do the math for its date for that, and you wind up getting 25,793 BBY for this story, for Into the Void, for Force Storm, and for Prisoner of Bogan. And that jives perfectly well with what we see on the interior timeline of Into the Void. You open that up. The timeline of the books inside has it at that date, and then it gives us our listing for Into the Void. So it makes perfect sense. And then it completely falls apart because the dates inside the novel don't seem like they're working for it anymore. You would have to wind up uh, shifting something around. And Wikipedia has already apparently done so. They've shifted it so that the Thoyor arrival is now 10 years before it's supposed to take place, uh, and they're claiming that it's based on the Old Republic timeline on the website, uh, saying that the Tholio arrival is 32,810 years before the Treaty of Coruscant instead of 32,800. That is not what the website says, but that's what they're claiming to justify their number so that Force Storm and such can take place in that year that we thought it took place at in the first place. Turns out that's not the case. He has basically clarified for us that apparently uh, the date in the front of Into the Void in the novel timeline is incorrect, or it's another of those landmarks, and that's just kind of a random date given as a landmark, and the story takes place actually a decade later. Uh, that the date given for the Force War on the Old Republic website is wrong. It's off by at least 10 years, and instead wow. we're supposed to believe that the novel Into the Void and the current Dawn of the Jedi comic series take place in the year 25,783, not 93 years before the Battle of Yavin, which is what makes the other numbers in Into the Void make sense. Uh, the only way it makes sense for the novel to say that that's when Into the Void takes place is if they're basically using the flashbacks in the book as a starting point instead of using the main story, which is what most books wind up doing. But suffice to say... The timeline issues have been shuffled around a little bit, it would seem, and he refers to these as the dates he was given, which kind of makes me wonder, given by whom. Um, but this story is now 10 years later than I had thought it was. Uh, I was apparently wrong on uh, that date, but not wrong on when the Thoyor arrival is. Uh, Jim like, LaHaye... Like 10 years closer to A New Hope or right, 10 years right, farther closer, away? 10 years closer. Okay. Uh, Jim LaHaye... Uh, who is a, a, a longtime listener and, uh, and reader of the Star Wars Timeline Gold, he had nailed it right at first, um, basing it just on the stuff that he saw in Into the Void, so he got that right. And at the moment, at least, and I'm assuming they can't change it until they see something in print, 
uh, which is what they've always told me when Leland has provided information that I've used to try to help correct them on something like uh, the date for annihilation, and they've steadfastly refused to believe it because they can't see the proof in print. I'm assuming this means that Wikipedia that is wrong on both counts, the date for Into the Void and the rest of the stories here, and the date for the Thoyor arrival will continue to be wrong on both counts for the foreseeable future. How's that for having a heck of a chronological headache? And this is all stuff that kind of came to the fore just in this last week. Uh, the first week of me being out of work became the day of, what? And having to kind of go back and <laughs> forth with Leland trying to figure out what on earth is going on with the dates for these stories. Well, um, but yeah, Tim... the, date, the date in the comic is completely wrong. It's off by over 10 millennia. And didn't Tim also say that the Wikipedia was like a, a godsend for him or something? And he's like, whoa, wait, what did he just say? Oh, good Lord, please tell me you're not using that as your fact checker. Yeah, although although it would be interesting if that was the case, because that would basically mean that the dates there might have been the right ones. And we had the right date for the stories, just the wrong date for the Thoyor arrival. But then, you know, that doesn't make sense. And that would cause the Thoyor arrival not to match up anymore with the, the date given in the first storyline. I mean, they're just... It's another of these eras in which it'd be nice if we got some more specific dates being given to us um, so that there wasn't that level of confusion. But at least now we have an answer. Well, for 10,000 years, the Jedi maintained a balance of the Force on their home world of Typhon. But when a powerful Force user named Zesh crashed on the planet, the entire world was threatened. Three young Jedi journeyers who had sensed Zesh's arrival and who helped subdue him believed he should return to Tython for training. But the Jedi Masters exiled the young man to the Dark Moon of Bogan for his own safety as well as the planets. But an inhabitant of Bogan, banished for a mad vision, is anxious to meet Zesh. And unbeknownst to all, Zesh's former masters in the Rakana Infinite Empire want him back. Thus is the setting of the first issue of prisoner of bogan uh and in fact we jump right to bis oh gotta love that from dark empire there the center of the galaxy uh which which is interesting because bis was always kind of in the deep core and they did kind of make it seem like the center of the galaxy but since they're on the outside of the typhon system it kind of makes the typhon system even closer to the center of the galaxy we haven't actually got a, a official center of the galaxy that I'm aware of. I don't know about you, but it is interesting to see that the Biss is the the planet where the Rocket and Infinite Empire is based. And from what you see, it looks like their ships just land and become cities in, a, in an aspect. I, I thought that was kind of an interesting take on it. It's cool that we, this is the one that really sort of deals with the Rakatans, not just as sort of the impetus for Zesh, but they're the big bad thing looming outside in the galaxy around them. Um, it's not something that gets really played up in Into the Void, even though a big part of that story is this concept of wanting to get away from just the Tython system, or the Tython system, T-Y-T-H-A-N. Um, but in this case, I mean, the first issue starts to give us, you know, it's uh, Skalnas trying to send Trill, the other Force Hound, to go and find Zesh, and in doing so to find this Force-powerful world that Zesh wound up on, uh, to figure out where he went. Uh, it starts giving us that as a menace, and it just grows and grows and grows as we learn more about this vision. And the vision is this thing that basically, there was a point at which Hawk Rio, who of course is uh, related to Tasha Rio and uh, Volnos Ox Rio, it's that whole family um, that we deal with there that we saw a little bit more of in the first arc. Uh, Hawk Rio, the blue Twi'lek, who looks a lot like 
Shade Oval, quite frankly. Um, and Dagan Lok, that is the guy who is the prisoner of Bogan, or one of the prisoners of Bogan, the guy that was sent to Bogan to try to meditate on the light side because he went too far to the dark side and yet has never been able to return, that we sort of saw briefly in the first arc, saw him getting a vision of Zesh in the first arc, but never really saw anything come out of that. We now see uh, that the vision that they had together when they went into... And was it the abyss? There's a, there's a chasm and there's the abyss. It was the chasm. Uh, the so, Jedi science, uh, science temple of Aelin Kresh on Tython straddles a deep planetary rent known as the chasm. Exploration of the chasm is forbidden because no Jedi has gone very far into it without losing their minds. Right, so these guys, they went into the, the chasm and basically shared a force vision. And... The, the nature of that force vision is something that becomes clear the further we go within this series. But in general, the idea is that at least the first glimpses we get is this concept that there is some kind of, of oncoming battle during which there will be a Jedi army that Dagon Luck believes that he will lead. And one of the key parts of this vision is this blade of energy, this blade of fire that he sees the leader of that army wielding. And he believes that it's then his destiny to lead that and to get a force saber once he understands what that is upon uh, meeting uh, Zesh and whatnot. So it's kind of one of those interesting things where it, it's very much a Troy Denning type of we're going to give you a vision but not tell you what it means at first. But unlike Troy Denning, by the end of this story, you actually know more specifics about the vision and kind of what it's supposed to be uh, uh, portending. Yeah, there's a lot of really cool stuff in this. I mean, you know, think about the first one. You get to see uh, there's a Nagri as one of the Jedi as well. Uh, there's a moment where they find a ship. Bogan's got on Bogan. Uh, Locks had it, and it, its batteries are dead. And I love the fact that Zesh, he figures it out right away. It's like the Force is power. And he puts his hand on it, and he starts using uh, Force lightning, you know, and he's like, he basically he just kind of does what Cade does in Legacy to his master wolf to the ship and just pours the force in. It's all the force hound sinks into himself deep into the wells of rage, hate and fear that burn within him and make them boil. Minox, drawn by the surge of power, flock hungrily to the ship and he's just loading it up beneath their leathery wings and flailing bodies. as The ship's hull begins to glow. And of course, you know, uh. The, the main dude, he's like, the reactor's online. Zesh, that's enough. Stop. You'll overload the power cells. It'll blow. You'll kill us both. You have to stop. I ordered you to stop now. And he rips his hand away. And Zesh is like, it's dangerous to stop me when I command the force. Don't ever presume to understand my power. Go fly the ship. And then he goes and heals himself. But it's like, I love the fact he's like, dude, you have no idea what the power you are messing with. Back off. <laughs> And that really gets into the dynamic between those two characters that plays such a big role when the series finally ends, or when the story arc finally ends, that, that from the moment that Dagon Luck meets Zesh, he plays up this idea like, we are brothers, but not really. Every step of the way, we see Dagon Luck kind of taking on more and more of a, you know, Zesh, you are a pawn in his game. You are his tool. You are his servant. You follow his orders. And even in that first issue, when that dynamic isn't really set in stone, you see him being the one to try to issue orders and tell him what to do. Uh, a lot of that, that first issue, though, is spent just kind of setting things up and reminding folks of what happened in the previous arc, for those of you who haven't read it or who haven't read it in a while, to launch us into more of the action once we get to a, a 2. But I will say that first issue 
the whole the, the crashed ship and whatnot. Um, it's another one of these things that is revealed more and more as this this series goes along. But we learn that in that uh, despot war between a Queen Hadea that was 12 years prior to these events. Um, so apparently now, what, 25,795 years before A New Hope? Um, that during that war that pit this, uh, this non-force-using, rabble-rouser, crime-lord-type lady and her minions against the Jedi, including a battle on Tython, that somehow or another Dagon Luck played a role in bringing her down and killing her in the end. And at first, all we know is that, you know, he's part of it, he should have been celebrated for it, blah, blah, blah. As we go to the end of the story, we find out more about what specific role he played, who else played a role in that, and uh, just kind of a little bit more about why it is that people look at the end of that war the way that they do. It's a very good arc for giving us hints of plot early on and then spreading it then by the time we get to the end, but definitely feels like a very transitional tale, not yet uh, a, an awesome butt-kicker action-adventure thing in its own right just yet. Yeah, they're still setting up a lot of characters. I mean, there's even a moment where uh, Master Ketu and uh, Master... Oh, what was his name? Uh, Raja, Rajavari? Uh, yeah, dude, that's, it's Rajavari, the guy from the Old Republic game. In the game, really? one of the first things that you do is you learn about this guy Rajavari. You meet his spirit. Where Rajavari was one of, was said to be one of the first people to break with the Jedi early on in their history on Tython, and his teachers were supposedly corrupt and all this kind of stuff. So the idea mm -hmm. of Rajavari being someone here in play in this series was something that a lot of people were saying. Wait a second, where's Rajavari? He should be part of this. If the Force Wars coming, and now here he is. It's a great tie between. The two, even though a lot of the really early information in the Old Republic seems like it's either distorted or somehow changed from what mm. we actually see in here when it comes to a lot of other aspects. Rajivari carried straight over from the game. That's cool, and I, I was not at all aware of that. You know, another cool thing is the likeness between Zesh and Locke. Uh, the two look very similar at times, and I think that that plays into the visions. Uh, when Locke's telling Zesh about when uh, when him and uh, and Ryo went down into the pit, you know, they both share the vision, but we don't know that quite yet. Uh, you know, you, you see as they go down, Locke's looking down, he's like a sword of flame, destruction, fire, death, and then he's like, I stared into the void, into the mouth of chaos, I think, I started screaming, and he was, I mean, his mouth's all open, he's like, ah! It looks completely crazy. And then Ryo's like, Dagon, no! And Hawk, look, do you see it? And then Hawk goes, I, dot, 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 we're getting out of here. So it's like, he did see it, but even at that moment, he's not willing to admit what he saw. And he's ready to turn and burn. And then, of course, he keeps it to himself, which, you know, part of me is like, why would he do that? Obviously, he's, you know, being selfish and covering his own butt and letting Locke take the fall. But we find out later about the whole aspect of him thinking it was Zesh. And I like the way that they play off the fact that these two look very similar. I mean, when you go to Locke in the flashbacks, Locke in the flashbacks looks a lot like Zesh right now. Uh, and that's a very interesting aspect to it. Um, you know, the first one, it ends with them kind of taking off and they're going to try to find and build their own uh, force saber because that was big in the vision was that force saber. And, I don't know, like the first issue does a good job of continuing to add to the layer. And I think that that's what we're getting right now with Into the Void and all this stuff is just the adding to the layer. I think, you know, 
I haven't read Into the Void. I've only flipped through it a little bit. But I think you're going to get the most out of that if you've been following the comic series. If you haven't, I don't know if you're going to get as much out of it until you finally read the comic series and start to put the two together. But I definitely, by the time we get to issue five, I'm looking forward to what this era is doing. That, of course, brings us into issue number two, which gives us, uh, again, it's sort of a bridging type of issue. We have uh, some background being given through flashbacks about the connection between Trill and Zesh, the idea of them sort of being friends, uh, being uh, blood-connected because of their time uh, uh, protecting each other as children. Uh, really kind of interesting to start to see some background for those so that we give a crap about Trill and, to a degree, Zesh as characters. Um, but then the chase begins, and it basically winds up, or sorry, I guess before I get to the chase, there's more information also being given when we see Tasha Rio go and visit uh, Master Terse Sindon at the Great Jedi Library and is able to access a holocron that basically has recordings from the Kwa, a Kwa named Anang inside it. Which is kind of interesting because not only here do we see early Qua technology, which is something that ties into the even earlier past of Star Wars, but we also in Into the Void are going to see Greed technology, which is another of these ancient races. So it's this idea that Tython, uh, even though it is a place where the Jedi have started, that it has more of a history in and of itself than even just what we're seeing here. But then well, it basically becomes a huge chase. And it becomes sort of a, we're going to tour all kinds of different planets within the Tython system while we chase down... Zesh and Dagon Lok. And we got a team basically made up of Seknos Wrath, of Shea Coda, of Hawk Rio, Belzana, and then the two Finns. Uh, Rory, the girl who has that connection, of course, with uh, uh, Hawk Rio. And then I love it, her brother, who's just Jake. Jake Finn. Of all the Star Wars names we get, we just, now we've got, hey guys, I'm <laughs> Jake. They wind up chasing Zesh and Dagon Lok to Krev Kor, which is where they hope to get crystals for these Force Sabers. But it begins this sort of, we're going to bounce from planet to planet to planet type of storytelling here that works well to introduce those places, but does kind of feel like a very heavy-handed, yeah, we're just taking a tour of the system because we still need to world build somewhat. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot going on in this one. I mean, when you, you mentioned the Holocron, I like that uh, when the characters are looking at it, she goes, it's shaped like a Thoyor. Is it a holocron, Master? I believe so. A very ancient one. And I like the fact that, yeah, it is shaped like the Thoyor. Uh, you know, holocrons at this point, I think all we have seen are, are Sithly ones. Triangular. Uh, it's interesting that most of these things are leaning that direction to what we would later come to think of as Sith. Not at all Sith, but pre-Sith. Uh, and then when we get the, the Kwai, I love that he is, he calls himself the last of the Tython Kwai. Uh, now the choir are the ones they're the ones that had the the uh, infinity gates, right? Right. Okay, so so that's interesting and it tells you a, a lot of how these guys probably got there. Uh, and if and, I, and and I, if I can add though, that adds a little bit of a complication because they have the infinity gates. But then in into the void, we get the concept of a hypergate that was built with Gree technology. It makes me wonder if uh, Tim LeBon managed to kind of smash those two concepts together by accident and got the oh. wrong species that he was trying to go for. Oh, that is interesting then. Huh. Well, yeah, it, it was interesting though that it, it 
and, and I think that for me, the more we read this, the more you learn that there's other events like the Despo War and stuff like that. And seeing that even these technologies that are old have uh, older roots still and are are mysterious. I mean, she's like, is it a holocron master? I mean, she don't even really know. And I love it. And even he's like, I believe so. Like, huh. And it's deep inside one of these temples. So it's like, even though the Jedi are here and they're doing all this, they really don't have a clue as to why they're there and all that. And I, I love that aspect of it. It's like, there are so many different mysteries going on here that even they don't know. Uh, you know, at the very beginning of issue two, you have uh, Ten Dog, and he's sitting there uh, in uh, the forge, which is uh, one of the, the crushes that they have, or Zeshus, or whatever you call it. He's trying to take the Force Saber and you know, figure out how it works, kind of reverse engineer it. And uh, he's like, my hottest forge doesn't affect it. And I love the fact, like, he pulls his hand out like, like, dude, it's so hot. You're really going to hold on to that? And, of course, it didn't burn him. But, you know, he's like, and the blade is made of frozen energy, you say. And, uh, of course, you know, they're, like, trying to figure it out. And then Hawk's like, let me try. And he gets it to work and starts cutting things apart. And, but, again, getting that aspect of it seems like the more he uses it, the more, I don't know, possessed he looks, like, filled with anger. <laughs> I don't know. There's something about it that has me thinking uh, in my mind, like, beware of the dark side, young Jedi. I guess one thing that should also be mentioned before we move out of issue two is before they actually chase them to Krevkoer, or however you're supposed to say that, um, we do get a chance to see Dagon's own personal quarters and what he has carved into the wall. And he's got this carving of himself leading that army, essentially, and we see a little bit of the vision through Hawk's recounting of it, where you've got basically an army of Force Saber wielders seen in this vision, but it's a, it's a picture of Dagon himself using the Force with one hand, but the Force Saber in the other, which gives us that sense of his sort of, uh, of ego as it relates to all of this. And now, now when that, who carved that? Did they ever mention who carved that there? I believe it's Dagon himself that supposedly carved that of himself about his vision. Uh, oh yeah, he does. He's like, Zesh didn't do this. Locke, Locke did this. Oh yeah, that is, and that's where he tells him that you know he had his own vision as well. I, I don't know. I, I'm very interested to see where we are going. I mean, and that's the beauty about this arc, especially. It's like each one is really building on itself now. Unlike in the first one, where it was like it would build a little bit, and you're kind of like, okay, where are we going from this? It's like each next issue that comes out is delivering a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, until we get to the fifth one, which it ends with a great buildup and a great jump off point. The third issue finally takes the chase to Krev Kower, uh, where Dagon and Zeshar to get the crystals. There's basically two places they expect them to go. They expect them to go there to get the crystals. They expect them to wind up going to Nox to actually go to the forge and actually build um, the Force Sabers themselves. And it's kind of cool because we see the team finally encounter the two uh, prisoners of Bogan and wind up with this knockdown, dragout kind of fight. But it's one that doesn't play out quite the way you would expect. You would expect it to be something where... You know, it's just overwhelming force, but it doesn't turn out that way. You would expect it to be Force Saber versus the other stuff, but remember, Zesh and Dagon don't have the Force Saber yet. Instead, they've got to use just regular blades. So it's a Jedi battle, but not quite what we expect in that it's regular blades and whatnot. It's sort of an interesting thing where it's frequently one-on-one, -on -one, despite it being a team effort. The team gets split, which makes for some cool dynamic sequences here. But what gets me about this, what kind of stands out to me overall, is Dagon Locke's attack on Belzana. He basically is able to reach into her mind, presumably with the dark side, find what she fears, and hit her with it. In his case, she apparently fears fire. 
He grabs onto that and makes her feel as though she is burning, and that incapacitates her enough that she's about to be tossed down to her death, which requires Seknos to break off his attack to be able to save her life. Uh, he manages to save her, and it looks like Seknos falls to his doom, which was kind of a shock at the time, and would have stayed a shock if, in the same issue, they hadn't revealed that no Trill found him. So goodbye to any um, buildup and, and tension there. But it's funny because I was just thinking the other day about how that type of concept is becoming so prominent elsewhere. I use it in greater good to a degree, the idea of using telepathy to, um, to overload someone in a sense and make them feel pain or feel what they fear. Um, we see the same type of thing happening in The Crow, for instance. Um, but those both came up as examples recently, uh, those plus uh, the Ghost Rider's penance stare and such came up in an episode of From the Star Wars Library that I did recently over for YouTube because there's a story called Dark Lord's Conscience where uh, an individual named Clat the Shamer goes up against Vader and tries to use his power, which is to force people to live through the guilt and the pain of their victims and such, and to sort of do a mental assault based on what they fear to recognize about themselves. But it doesn't affect Vader at all kind of leading to the idea that maybe Vader has no conscience or he thinks he's justified in everything. And it's cool to see that after so many years of not really going that far into the psychology of Star Wars and getting into people's brains and using the pains against them, we saw it sometimes but not that much. Here we find that even in the ancient times, that was sort of a taboo. Doing that is something that makes Dagon look seem even more evil to us than some of these other characters we've seen as villains in the past. And I like that. It's this, this idea of psychological invasion and torture. I mean, anyone can harm someone, and we're used to the idea in Star Wars and other stories of harming someone's body, physical injury, but mental injury, including invasive mental injury, essentially the equivalent of um, a mental version of rape, in a sense. Um, that is not something that we see much within the Star Wars saga or in sci-fi in general relative to just regular physical battle, and it's cool to see here them using that to make Dagon Locke even more foul and twisted of a character. Yeah, and for me, I think one of the things I like uh, with issue three especially is continuing of the of the Kwai. Uh, you know, it's got that master in the holocron, and he's like, shall I tell you a story? Yes, I shall tell you a story. Listen, listen, I am a nag of the Typhon Kwai. I am dead. This is my holocron recording my memories and my stories i will tell you of the qua once too my people journeyed here from our birth world of dathomir and called tython home attuned to the power of the cosmos my people traveled the galaxy via infinity gates portals that transported us instantly between great places now is that is infinity gates what tim was calling them no he's calling them hypergates and referring to the gree and the need for mm. dark matter and such to be able to operate one. So it's a similar tech and a similar idea of it coming from an ancient race, but that's not them. And wow, as we're recording this, I don't know if you just heard that on the recording, there is thunder crackling outside. A, we're in the midst of a forced storm of our own. Yoda and Palpatine are going at it. No, oh, no. <laughs> uh, so so that, that could work, though. I mean, I, I could see technologies being very similar to each other in that regard and, and, and mimicking each other. I mean, a lot of people try to mimic what the Rakatans do. Uh, he goes, we observed many worlds and brought civilization to their people, but alas, for this holocron to have activated now can mean only one thing, that a catastrophic event has occurred on Titan. Uh, you know, and it goes to uh, the Twi'lek, and she's sitting there with her master, the Zabrik, 
and they've got the skull of one of them. And she's like, uh, there were many species on board, but we've identified all except for one, and we have its skull. And she has the Holocron's databank scanning it. And the guy's like, Rakata! <laughs> like, like, oh no, big bad! He's just like, oh, this can't be good. Uh, and then, of course, he just turns and burns and bails and leaves them there, and they're all alone. Uh, there's there's a lot in this one that happened so fast that I was just like, whoa, I, I don't know. It, it took a lot to digest, I guess. Um, you know, when you have, uh, what, what'd you call her? Uh, uh, C, Shri? Shay? No, uh, the dark one, the one that, uh, the, the fire burner. Oh, Bell. uh, uh Bell Zana. Zana. Yeah. W- I mean, like, Bell Zana showing up w- took me by surprise. I like, though, that there's like a very small Quinlan Voss, uh, kind of connection there where she's got the star of his people, like, on her belt. Like, I, I don't know if that's, meant to give you the feeling that she may be that same species or not but i i kind of came away with that uh, a lot of little subtle things like that i mean you got the other character that kind of looks like legolas going at it and stuff but you know the whole sith aspect with uh Seknos. yeah when Seknos did his whole thing it, it reminded me of that moment in uh the rebel book with uh, luke and target where you know luke dies and yet we immediately find out that he didn't die, the lost opportunity. I mean, it works to keep the story moving, but I think it would have been better if they'd have kept his being captured by uh, the Force Hound. I think her name was Shrill. Uh, keeping her and that in Trill. If, they, if they'd have done that in the next issue, I think that would have worked a lot better. Like, I, I don't know. I, I Finding out that he was okay in this issue, it took some of the mystery out of it or the suspense out of it, I guess. It's almost as though they were looking for a cliffhanger, and they didn't know which cliffhanger to go with. Instead of making it be whether or not one of these characters that we've known and kind of gotten to like since the last arc uh, was dead or not, instead it was, oh no, he's not dead, and they use the, look, Dagenlock now has a force saber, uh, his vision is starting to come true, blah, blah, blah. Uh, he could just go to the Jedi and show them the force saber, and maybe that would help prove his vision was true, but no, instead he needs an army, and he knows where to get one, which leads us to the, what? as we go towards the next issue, but it was it's weird. It was almost like there were two cliffhangers to go with, and they picked the one that uh, I think probably has the least emotional impact of the two, but is more in keeping with fitting the broader story arc of the era. Yeah, and something else that's kind of weird is uh, when Locke's looking over the lightsaber, he's got like what looks to be Zesh's tattoo imprint on his face. <laughs> I don't know what's up with that. Uh, the other thing that was interesting, too, though, is that when Zesh makes this Force Saber, it is distinctly single-bladed, where the other one could possibly be dual-bladed with its construction. This one only has an emitter end on one side. The other one looks like it possibly has two, although we've only seen one end lit up. I'm very curious just to see how that's going to play out. Then issue number four is the one that really kind of gets things going with the holy crap aspect of it, where we find that... What Loke means by an army is that there are a lot of people on Nox who still despise the Jedi, uh, or the Jedi, because of what happened back in the Despot War. And he, Dagon Loke, the man who uh, was able to, we find out here, kill Queen Hadea to end the war. We don't know quite why yet. We'll find out how that played out in issue number five. But the man who tried and succeeded in killing her and ending the war shows up to see some of the generals that he had apparently worked with who were on the other side, uh, on Hadia's side, and says, hey guys, uh, how about you guys work with me and we'll create an army? And it's kind of a, wait, 
what type of moment here where even they are like, who the heck are you to come back after killing our leader and try to say, hey, let's get the old gang back together again. We should just kill you where you stand. And he gives an interesting rationale, basically the idea that Hadea, according to him, Hadea knew that she could only rule the settled worlds if all the Jedi were dead. I want to save the Jedi and the system, but the Jedi are stubborn and won't hear reason in terms of his vision and all. They must be made to listen. So it's kind of like Dagan Loke in his mind thinks of himself as the one who is going to do right by the Jedi, that he's the only one who can save them and save Tython. But in order to get them to, to agree to listen to him, he thinks he needs an army to force that to happen. And at this point, I'm thinking that that's what the Force vision was. That the vision of all those Force Saber-wielding people led by a Force Saber-wielding general who appeared in the cave drawing to be Dagon Loke made me think that it's the Jedi versus a Force led by Dagon Loke. That's what the Force War is meant to be. I would never have expected the Rakatans to be part of that just yet, and yet we'll find that that impression, which I think is one they were trying to give, isn't right. There's a little bit of a mix, misdirection type of thing there. But then that's the issue that gives us some more knockdown, drag out battling. We get to see Shea Coda go up against Zesh, and remember her uh, saving her life was something that sort of opened up a difference in Zesh back in Force Storm. There's that connection between the two characters. He doesn't want to see her killed. He has feelings for her, some kind of connection to her at that point. Um, and then we get the bombshell. Yeah, this is the one that just brings everything together. The bombshell where Anang, the Qua from the Holocron, gives us the origins of the Rakatans and their technology. The idea that it was the Qua who, like on many worlds, brought the technology and taught the Rakatans about the Force, taught the Rakatans about technology in general and powering things with it. But the Rakatans were this crazy, power-hungry race that they realized too late were just going to use it for uh, darker things, dark side only, ignoring the idea of balance, and that when the, the Qua refused to give them Hypergate technology so they could start conquering uh, the galaxy, that's when essentially the Rakatans turned on them uh, and almost wiped out the Qua, leaving the Qua basically to sort of fade into the the, uh, the annals of history. And it's the, this fear of that that caused the Qua in the Holocron to sort of disappear in the previous issue. And we finally had the Jedi recognizing, you know what, Zesh is here as an agent of the Rakatans. The Rakatans are this wave of, of evil Force users. Holy crap. That's what Dagon Loke's uh, vision, they think, was about. So we've got to get prepared. All of a sudden, Zesh and Dagon Loke aren't being hunted because they're escaped prisoners. They're being hunted because they realize they may be necessary in the grand scheme of things to stop Doomsday, essentially, from happening. Issue four is the one mm -hmm. that just takes everything and pulls it all together. The first three felt like it was kind of a tour and wasn't quite hitting all the notes exactly right. But going back and reading it after seeing four, it all starts to kind of fit together, which I guess is what's meant for these to be story arcs so you can read as trade paperbacks later. It's only us crazy people who read them issue by issue. Yeah, yeah, that is the downside of the comic addiction right there. If I could switch to the other format, I probably would, but unfortunately my OCD does not let it. Uh, I love the aspect of when uh, the choir talking, the choir talking and uh, how that whole battle, all the scenes imagery here is really fun. I mean, especially from a KOTOR standpoint. I mean, that was where these guys were kind of introduced. So uh, I like how uh, they also talk about how uh, the Infinity Gate, there it could be destroyed uh and they it says following the rakatan debacle my people destroyed or disabled most of the gates and retreated to our home world of dathomir which we then learned that they later de-evolved i mean they stayed on that planet and de-evolved into like lizards but 
Sometimes I get the impression that these guys could be the E.T. species, you know? I mean, they, they have a very similar look. <laughs> but it, getting back to that aspect of they retreated to their home world and they destroyed all the gates makes me wonder if that's when the Gree then made their gates or, or like I said, I haven't read Into the Void yet, were the Gree gates just as old a technology? There, it's part of the old city on Tython, which is ruins that were old even when the Thoyor showed up with all the Jedi. Oh, so the so then in this case, the Qua could be using the Grease technology in that case. That okay, okay, that's what I love about this era is it is still so fresh and so new, and so many things are being discovered as we go. Um, I, I will admit that one of the things was, was uh, Shay kind of got a little whiny with her. I don't know. I, I didn't feel like she did all that much for Zesh like she does. Like she felt like she cut off an arm for him. We did this for you, and this is how you treat us. Like, girl, he, he didn't ask you to do that. You chose to. Why are you not like? Are you just like a backpatter or something? I did this for you. You need to recognize my sacrifice because I sacrificed for you, and I didn't have to. Well, I didn't ask you to. But I didn't have to. I didn't ask you to. I didn't have to. Oh man, can you can you hear it in the background? The uh, it, was it Sister Hazel? It's hard to say what it is I see in you. Wonder if I'll always be with you. Uh, words can't say what I wouldn't do or can't do. Uh, enough to prove it's all for you and all that crap. You can just hear like the the song playing in the back, and it totally changes the mood of that battle if you hear that kind of music in the background. <laughs> yeah, I, I like when uh, when Hawk and Locke, that's kind of weird, uh, when they're in battle over the vision, uh, you know, and they each got their dark or force saber. Why? So my brother Jedi. Wait, can... you're you're already in issue number five. No, I'm in four. You're in five if you're seeing if you're seeing Dagon, Locke, and Hawk oh, fighting my... or. My... Mine says four on the cover. Okay, must be, must be, they must fight twice. My bad. They must. Or, or uh, is it, yeah, it's, yeah, it's Locke. I'm like, wait, is that Zesh? Uh, he goes, uh, the masters need to stop denying the truth of my vision and face the truth of their own destiny. You also have a sword of flame. Admit it. The vision is coming true. You saw the same vision, Hawk. There was no vision. Something in the chasm drove us both mad, but I worked through it. Got well on Bogan, as you should have done. You've let your ego shape what you saw. I don't share your madness. Believe what you want. But you are not the leader. Dest you are not the destined leader of the Jedi. And I love the fact that, you know, he's... I, it seems like Hawk's kind of like in a denial. There was no vision, he says. Something drove us both mad. So he admits that he saw what he saw, but he sees it as madness. <laughs> and it's kind of like, dude... One of you is in some serious denial here. <laughs> and neither of them is really seeming like they're going about things the right way. I guess that's kind of the, the curse of the chasm is that once you have a vision, it's not necessarily going to be one that you can easily relate and retain and, and act upon without it affecting you in some sort of erratic way. Which I guess brings us to issue number five. Well, before we get to issue number five, I have a question because... We only see the construction of one Force Saber, correct? I believe so, yeah. Okay, so in issue four, we have Locke and Hawk fighting. Locke has the single-blade version, and Hawk has got the dual-blade version. They battle to a standpoint. Locke turns his down. You can lie to yourself, brother, but you know the truth of what we both saw. And then he jumps over the cliff. 
Hawk still has the dual bladed one. From there, we go back to Zesh and, and Shay, and they're fighting. She's got two swords. She kicks Zesh in the face. Zesh falls down to the ground. She pulls the sword out, has him across his face, and then all of a sudden, he now has Hawk's dual bladed force saber. What the frack just happened? Well, I guess it, we, we're just expected not to, to notice them put it together because if you actually look at, I mean, same thing in issue number five, Dagon has the one that's only a one-sided one, but you'll see Hawk and Zesh both fighting with dual-sided. So presumably he, they built more than just the one when they had the chance, which makes sense that they would build one for each of them to be able to use, cool. especially when that's the weapon that you know Zesh is more comfortable with. He's not going to just make one and give it to Dagon and not make one for himself. And, and I agree, that does make sense, but at the same time, you think somewhere in that last few pages on issue three, they would have two of them. I, well, oh, oh, nope, nope, right there, sure enough. Okay, so in the uh, second to last page, in number three, uh, you've got Zesh is building the crystal on the lightsaber, and down on the plate, or on the table is the one that they're about to put the crystal in that he gives to Locke. But in the arm of the other handle that goes across there is the dual-ended one being held in the pincher. It looks like it's one arm. It's actually an arm holding the other saber. That is your only view of the other saber. Oh, Holy wow. Cow, that is That's very true. subtle. That looks, that it looks like the arm of the machine. Yeah. Huh. Wow. Okay. Because I was going to say, I'm like, why not put that in there? I mean, it wouldn't have been hard. Even when they show Locke handing, or, or, uh, Zesh handing Locke the one. They could have had him having another one, but it, it is there. It is just very hard to see. Wow. Okay, well, then that answers that question, because I was really seriously, that was throwing me off. I'm like, wait, this makes no sense whatsoever. This is Boba Fett climbing up a ladder that's gone. What the hell? That then brings us to issue number five, where the final confrontation takes place, leading us out of this story and towards Force War. Um, we find out more about the background of Dagon Loke and the whole Queen Hadia thing. Turns out, that uh, Volnos Rio Ox, the, the crime baron guy on Chicago, had managed to get uh, Dagon behind enemy lines to work with Hadia, leading some of her forces until he finally turns on her as he had always planned, killing her. Uh, and we get a little bit of that in background in some flashbacks. So it's kind of interesting to see that, again, the Rio family is coming back and playing a role in this. They're very much sort of like the, uh, the mafia family of this era. You know, they touch everything, it seems like. Um, we get to see more of the knockdown, drag-out type battles. Uh, that phrase I keep using a lot. Between the different characters, during which we see a couple of interesting things. We see Trill noticing Zesh. Zesh noticing Trill and her having and him having absolutely no memory of who she is, it seems like. Um, it seems like whatever happened to his memory with the crash was more complete than we realized. It was true, full-on full amnesia, and we find by the end of the issue that that was actually what Skalnas intended when turning him into essentially a, a spy-slash-agent for him against the other Praetor, uh, to bring down the ship that winds up crashing onto Tython. So we see a little bit more of background for what we saw happen back in Force Storm. Uh, from a character standpoint, we get a couple of cool moments. We get Zesh basically uh, finally being able to realize that he's being made into a servant of Dagon Lok and refusing to allow that to happen. So Dagon gets a crow pulled on him, essentially, his own power used back against him, where uh, 
Loke tries to reach into Zesh's mind and find some horror to use against him, but the horrors of the Rakatans that are in Zesh's mind, even if they're buried under the surface, are so terrible it actually freaks out Dagon and winds up bringing him down for capture instead, which I thought was kind of a cool little twist there. Um, and we have the confrontation, the second confrontation, between Dagon and Hawk, in which, you know, Hawk is, is sort of forced to recognize that, yes, they had that vision, and he confronts Dagon over what Dagon wants to do about the vision. Uh, Dagon says, uh, war is coming, like nothing we have ever seen. To face darkness, we need to be armed with the dark side. Your denial of the truth helped that along, brother. Brother as in, like, brother in arms here. Had you told the truth, the Jedi could have prepared defenses against the alien army. Hawk says, you want the Jedi to forsake the balance. At which point, Dagon says, balance will not serve against the kind of power that Zesh alone exhibits, and he is one of these aliens' slaves. Imagine the power of his masters. And that's when things go, whoa. You know, that's when you realize what it is that he's actually doing. Um, he, he shows in one of these flashes in the visions that it wasn't an army of Jedi with the Force Sabers. That's not what he was necessarily seeing. What he was seeing was the alien army, the Rakatans, whose faces we finally see in this image of the vision armed with Force Sabers as they invaded Tython. So we've got a lot of different perspectives where it's sort of like we're expecting to see, I guess, two different armies, both wielding Force Sabers, fighting against each other, with the Rakatans on one side and their Force Hounds and the Jedi on the other. And by the time the story is wrapping up, we've got the sense that this is all about to happen because the Jedi are getting ready. Uh, Dagon is sent back to Bogan and still boasting about how, you, you know, you will come back begging to bring me back to lead you because this is going to happen. Um, we get the bombshell from Hawk that Hawk says that when he saw the vision, it wasn't Dagon who he saw leading the Jedi forces. It was Zesh, which is all kinds of other questions, but may answer part of why they made the characters look so similar to each other so that that, that uh, mistaken identity thing could be made. Um, but we also get the conversation between Trill and Skalnas basically saying, look, Zesh doesn't realize he's your spy. He's good to go. He's going to do what we need. I'm on Tython. Here are the coordinates. And as this, as this arc ends, a ton of Rakatan starships start setting course for Tython. And it just says, next, book three, Force War. That's what this has all been building to. And that last two issues rock. The first three issues kind of, kind of hobble along and really work better when you read it all as one shot. But even individually, those last two issues were awesome. Yeah, and, and there's another side here. Uh, what was the guy you said he was the Force Ghost? The Force Ghost. What Force Ghost? Ra Rajin or Ra Rajalin? Oh, Rajivari. Okay. In the end of 4, Rajivari is talking about the vision of Locke. So he goes, uh, the ship that crashed on Tython must have been a scout ship. Gather the rangers. Locke and Zesh, me, but Locke and Zesh must be brought back to Tython. Locke's vision is Wait, that's through. not Rajivari. That's not Rajivari. That's, not that's Rajivari the other that's one. saying that. Oh, so Rajivari is the bald one? Yeah, Rajivari is the bald one. Oh, interesting. Okay. Oh, well, that changes up a lot of what I was thinking. I was thinking the guy with the beard and stuff was going to be that Rajivari character because it seems like he is starting to lean and and believe Locke. Um, in, in issue four, he says that. And then again, in issue five, he and Hawk are talking. Um, and he's like, I'm asking Hawk, did you share Locke's vision? Yes. I convinced myself that what I saw beneath annual crash was a hallucination, part of the chasm's madness. And Locke, and Locke's, I was wrong. 
And then he goes, Anganar's uh, holocron reinforces Locke's claim as well. The seers are in deep meditation, seekers guidance, seeking guidance through the force. We have begun preparations for war. I mean, so it seems like he has believed Locke's vision. So it kind of sucks that he's not that one because that's that's Master Ketu, K E T U. So. I'm kind of wondering how that's going to play in then, because I thought he was the other one, and it was like making sense that he was starting to go Locke's way, which would lead to him leaving the order. But that's not him, huh? Huh? It just seems like I, the, the Jedi as a whole are starting to believe that you know these visions actually were true, even if they don't necessarily agree with the interpretation of it. They see something coming. That this wasn't madness. This was a vision of the future. Yeah, and and the fact that Hawk, Hawks not quite truth isn't fully known only few let's see Locke knows and now he just told the other jedi master there at the end that he also shared one but he hasn't told the full order so i mean that's new light that's also going to play into it i would assume in the next arc i like i'm with you on the aspect of the build-up in the last two just putting a match to a powder keg man it's just I, this next arc is going to be explosive i am very looking forward to it um you know, with all these comic arcs, I, I am to the conclusion that I really think most readers are going to get the most out of getting these all in one arc, uh, the trade, or waiting and getting all one through five at once, uh, or buying all five and waiting and then reading them all at once. I really, I'm, the more and more we read these as single issues and then and then look at the arc, I truly think that the overall arc is definitely the way to consume this. Um, yeah. It's not until we get back and we, we do these episodes that I really get a big appreciation for the overall story. And it's funny because these are the ones that I do the worst with. Uh, Dawn of the Jedi and Star Wars Volume 2 by Brian Wood and Carlos DeAnda with that great artwork. Um, those two are the ones that anytime a new issue comes out, I don't wait on them. See, I don't go to a local comic shop here anymore to pick up the issues. I get them through things from another world, which is the website that, and if you try to pre-order on Dark Horse's website, it goes straight to their comic shop, uh, this big comic store. Um, I not only have to wait for them to be shipped, but I also have to wait for Jody to check, my fiance, soon-to-be wife, uh, to check her P.O. box because I kept getting packages with comics in them that were bent all to crap over and over again. I had to keep ordering replacement copies from things from another world because they would show up all bent to hell. And I wouldn't want to put that in my collection. I'd want to get one that is, you know, a decent copy. So we just shifted it to there since it's a different postman, I guess, that's putting them in the boxes there. And they've turned out fine since. But with those two delays, I don't want to wait to read Dawn of the Jedi or the new Star Wars series, especially if there's continuity issues that come up with them to discuss online and whatnot. So I will get those, not just as individual issues, I will buy them essentially twice. I'm getting the one sent to me through the mail, but on the day it comes out, I'll jump on the Dark Horse app, which I'm still not all that fond of. It doesn't crash as much now, and I'll get those issues off of there. So I'm not only reading them individually, I'm reading them individually kind of twice, because I'm reading the digital version before my print one shows up. Nice. <laughs> well, you know, you do what you have to do. Uh, I would say overall, though, this is this is a key part of this era. Um, I think you're going to get the most out of the book if you have caught this arc especially. Maybe not in the first one so much, but this one is setting up a lot of cool events. I don't know how they tie into the book, but I do think that for the era that you're getting into, that this is going to be one that really starts shifting the landscape. 
Yeah, the next arc is going to be the the game changer. I mean, we kind of know vaguely what happens, but only what we've seen in other books looking back on it. So it's really cool to see this finally fleshed out here. Uh, my wondering is what happens after this? Where does it go after the Force War story arc? And how many story arcs do we expect to actually be in Dawn of the Jedi by the time it ends? Because there's still yeah. stuff coming up after that. The foundation of the Republic, the connection with the Republic, how do they eventually get out of the Tython system, and so on and so on and so on. All right. So with that, we will uh, hit our final thoughts here. Uh, I would say, you know, like I said before, uh, it's a good read. It would definitely be a fun read. If you've never even looked in this era, it's definitely something you should check out. Nathan? Yeah, this is a good arc. I think that you need to have read the first arc to understand this arc. Um, just like you need to have read at least the first arc to understand Into the Void as a novel if you're going to pick that one up. Um, but between this and Forest Storm, and Into the Void, and the short story eruption that goes with it, I think we're starting to get a nice, grounded sense of this era, um, and definitely is one that is a unique enough era that you should probably be picking it up to, to enjoy something a little bit different with Star Wars out there. Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Film. Thank you guys once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing the fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online at the Star Wars Report website, www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on iTunes, which we encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can also find links of our episodes on both Twitter and on our Facebook page, at SWBeyondFilms. Or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. But no matter how you get there, be sure to like our page. We're over 1,200 Beyonders strong. It's one of the best ways to interact with us. Not only can you post comments to us about the shows, we also love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars and or EU questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can always email us directly at SWBeyondFilms at StarWarsFanWorks.com. Now, lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention to you our Audible trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash Star Wars Report, you get a free trial run of Audible.com to see what they're all about. With more than 100,000 titles, you can explore the Star Wars Expanded Universe or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you just did not like. Audible members can exchange any book within 12 months, no questions asked. In this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the screen or in a digital library, Audible.com just might be right for you. So, once again, for Star Wars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying thanks for listening and may the force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that they'll tweak the time frame for the stories again. Or that they'll go even farther back and tell us about the Gree. Or if it'll turn out that Zesh and Dagan Loke were long-lost cousins. Ooh! Or that Zesh is Locke in a time loop.
Prisoner of Bogan. Wait, wait, that's what we're talking about? Yeah. I thought this time we were talking about Into the Void. Oh, no, I haven't even read it yet. Oh, no. Okay, then let me get the comics out, because that's not what I thought we were talking about. Wait, that's not what you said. Hang on. Actually, I should be able to pull it up on my iPad, because I downloaded them all. That's easy, because the iPad's right here. Yeah, I thought we were doing Into the Void, which is why I've kept my email up, even though the da-da-da-da sounds are going, because I was trying to explain the timing of that book. 